Welcome back to Zora's Daughters, the podcast where we discuss popular culture with a Black feminist anthropological lens. I'm Brendan, and I use she, her, hers pronouns. Hi, everyone. This is Alyssa. My pronouns are she, her, hers. And we have a really cool episode in store for you today. We'll be discussing futurity, Afrofuturism, Octavia Butler, and the end of the or this world. And of course, we'll be joined by Liberty and Jordan, co-hosts of the Lose Your Sister podcast. We're the daughters. They're the sisters. <laughs> We're derived from Zora Neale Hurston, and they're riffing on Saidiya Hartman. I mean, it's just, it's too good. I too am good. so, so excited to be shooting the shit with them today. <laughs> That's what we're going with, but I think it's going to be a really fun conversation. And since we're reading fiction for just the second time on the podcast, we're really looking forward to having their insights since they both come from Black studies and comparative literature backgrounds. So finally, some people who can tell us about motifs and symbols, you know? (laughs) Right. Because we read symbols in life. They read symbols on the page. Okay. 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 (laughs) Just just say, you know, it's going to be a whole different vibe today. Yes, and I think what's really cool is we've really set up these last three episodes, well, this one and then the last two episodes, like a series. You know, mm. we could we could be like the temporality series or something. Yo, you know, we right. did we did the past and the future, you know, the past that is the future and our present with plantation futures, the construction of the past in the present with Naomi's work, and now we're getting to the possibilities of the future and imagining new worlds with Octavia Butler's Parable of the Sower. And it wasn't even on purpose, but just like literally our shit just aligns. That's how we roll. That's how we roll. Our minds. minds. (laughs) (laughs) But before we give the entire episode away, I want to say a huge thank you to everyone who's donated to the podcast or engaged with us on Instagram or Twitter. We would not be doing this without you. Like point blank period, right? And so if you would like to donate to us, please head over to our website, zorasdaughters.com. And if you don't have it right now, like many people in the world, that's fine. Um, Because let's be real, times are hard. Hard And we love, like hard, (laughs) with a hard H. Um, (laughs) We love non-monetary support too. So you can leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, which honestly fills our cups. And y'all, newsflash right we are not massive influence on social media so the way that most people are still coming across this podcast is the old-fashioned way right word of mouth so please follow us on social media tag zora's daughters on ig or zora's underscore daughters on twitter share the episode with your friends drop a link in the family group chat or suggest it as part of your underwhelming dei programming at the office (laughs) where do we come up with these things But speaking of DEI, and that's diversity, equity, and inclusion for folks who are not embedded slash enslaved in corporate life, (laughs) (laughs) we offer Black feminist workshops for companies and nonprofits, and we've offered workshops like How to Be a Better Ally to Black Women and Finding Joy in Community, or we can just completely customize something for your organization. So just shoot us an email at zorasdaughterspod at gmail.com for more information. Yes, please. Also, Black Future Month, which some of you might know as Black History Month, is really right around the corner. So be sure to reach out to us if you're looking for programming. Our calendars are already filling for next semester, believe it or not. Um, 
with all that being said, shall we get into the episode? Uh, yes. What's, yes. What's our word for the day? All right. What's the word? The word is futurity. It is a term that people love using when all they need to say is futures. Okay, no, that's not it. <laughs> I mean, academics be doing that. Like, how can we make simple things less simple, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but let's start with why do people use the term futurity instead of just future? And I think we'll start with the simplest part, which is the Merriam-Webster definition. All right, so futurity is defined as the quality, state, or degree of being future. Right? It's about the possibilities and prospects of existing in a time to come. So simply, futurity is all the possible futures for a people, the process of envisioning, building, and enacting those futures. Yeah, I think that's a great definition to kind of just keep in your pocket. That's what I say. That's what I do when there's a term that I don't fully understand yet, <laughs> dialectic. Um, but I want to at least follow someone's point or someone's argument. I just have a short definition or cinnamon, cinnamon or synonym (laughs) that I can replace the word with in the sentence. So then I can just, you know, keep reading, keep it pushing. It's all good. But back to what you said, I really want to put the underscore on being. And I think that when scholars are talking about futurity, particularly in black studies, there's a, there's a tacit ontological question. Right. And so remember, ontology deals with the nature of being, the question of what is it to exist? And that implied question, I think, is, is black being possible and what can we become? And I think that question has become even more significant in this landscape of, quote, crisis. Right. Which I put in these kind of sarcastic quotation marks because, of course, this time of crisis is only now starting to affect white people. And capitalism and the other evils of the world are doing exactly as they're supposed to do and they have done to marginalize communities. And as we talked about before, for black folks, our worlds have ended time and time again. But talk about futurity has become more uh, mainstream, I, I guess we'll say, uh, as we experience the effects of climate change and capitalism. White people are starting to reckon with the possibility of not having a future for Possibly the first time. Ooh. 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 <laughs> I mean, I think the reason that it, it is so scary, and don't get me wrong, I too have had my share of climate anxiety, and we're going to talk about that later. Mm. But I think it's because there isn't a blueprint for this for some groups of people, right? There isn't this kind of, there hasn't really been this like literal end of the world period in their recorded history. You know, they haven't been ripped from their homelands or stripped of their culture, identity, or even the possibilities of reproducing those cultures. And so futurity is something that's necessarily related to the past and the present. Although the present isn't quite real either, but, Mm. you know, we can talk about that. But without that knowledge of having survived an end of their world, and without knowing true community, because individualism is one of these like strong, deeply held um, values in white supremacy culture, mm-hmm. this end seems like the end. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And I, I am interested to hear what you say, like when you mean the present isn't real. Right. So neuroscientists have actually found that we're always perceiving things after they've happened because our brains are a little bit slow. (laughs) They're slower than physics, right? So 
our brains lag about 80 milliseconds behind actual events. That's so if wild. we follow these like these laws, the Western laws of physics anyways, we're actually always living in the past. That's, that's wild. I'm just sitting here like, wow, to know that I'm <laughs> reacting slower than things are happening. It's just fascinating. Um, yeah, I feel like in thinking through this, right, we should also consider the implications of there being different ways of perceiving time and space that doesn't just differ across cultures, but also within a lifespan. Like, yeah, uh, yeah, like I felt like I was 13 forever, forever. I was like, I just want to be 15. I just want to be 15. <laughs> and those ages last forever. And then I turned 30, went by what? like that. Oh, what, the <laughs> hell? what the hell happened? Blinged like, and now I'm 32. <laughs> Look, my Saturn return that I am sitting in right now is kicking my black ass. So I feel that like I've been 28 for four months and Miss Saturn got her foot on my neck. Like it, it, like, it, it literally does that. You feel crazy. During this. I, at least I did. Well, here I am. Um, what, what would you say are the effects, right, that those differences that we have on our understanding of physics or other sciences or systems that rely on a particular understanding of how time operates. What kind of effects do we have from that, you think, in our society? Oof, girl, I don't even know. <laughs> I don't know. I think <laughs> I think that we would probably have to talk to someone who does more like indigenous ontology work or like Ooh. African spirituality work. And I'm sure that there is someone out there who is transmitting that knowledge through oral history right now or someone who's documenting it. Um, But to go back to us living in the past and futurity being tied up with that past, I'm going to I'm going to dust off my psychology degree. And tell you all about the study that was done on a patient who had both retrograde and enterograde amnesia. So basically retrograde amnesia couldn't remember anything from before the incident that caused the amnesia. And enterograde amnesia is when you can't create new memories or you have difficulty what? creating new memories. So this patient, he had no recollection of the past. He couldn't create a past for himself in his mind. And so he also could not imagine himself in the future. And so other patients who have similar, um, who have had similar disorders, they can understand the future abstractly, but they can't project themselves into it. And so in order to investigate that further, psychologists started putting research participants into fMRI machines. Um, and basically those are the ones that show like the activity in your brain. And so like different neural pathways or different parts of your brain will light up based on what they ask you to do. And so they found that recalling the past and envisioning the future, they light up the same neural pathways. Hmm which I think is super cool, which tells you that like, in some ways the past is an invention, Ooh. is a recreation, the recollection you're recreating. But anyhow, <laughs> when people tell stories about their past, that's, that's essentially what it is. And there's also evidence that shows that every time you talk about the past, every time you recall a memory, you change it a little bit. So, mm. so there is a bit of fabrication involved in uh, creating the past. Right, so it's not just Gemini's out here making up shit, y'all. We all know <laughs> we all do it. We all do it. Well, well, maybe not all of us because, as we've said before on the podcast, right? Psychology is weird. That acronym mm-hmm. that stands for um, 
Western educated, industrialized, rich, democratic people, people from those countries. Um, studies are, psychology studies are mostly conducted on people who are quote unquote weird. I would add white to that um, mm. just based on my memory. But it's basically, I mean, a lot of these psychology studies are done on undergraduate students trying to get credit for, <laughs> trying to get class credit because that's what I was doing. Um, but I think, you know, that tells you a little bit more of an answer to your question, right? Like, would mm. those would those neural pathways, would those patterns be the same for people from cultures or communities who conceive of time and space differently than the Euro-American or capitalist time space? Mm. And so, you know, as an example, to take it back to anthropology, right? For us, for people who are raised educated in the West, we spatialize time in the sense that the future is ahead of us. We always think like, the future is forward and the past is behind us. The past is back. For the Aymara and actually other groups of people, but the Aymara people living in the Andes, it's reversed because the past mm. is something that you know. So the past is in front of them spatially. And that's something you can see. But the future is something you can't see. So the past is spatialized behind them. And so if you all are interested in that, you can check out um, the book Marking Indigeneity, the Tongan Art of Socio-Spatial Relations by Tavita O. Kaili. And that's just, it's a brilliant ethnography of indigenous traditions of marking time and creating space. But yes, I will, I'll put it in the description box so you all don't have to take notes too much while we're talking. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, to get back to my original point, my theory is that this visceral existential fear that people have now about the apocalypse, it actually emerges from our inability to conceive of something in the future or to project the past into the future because it's out of the bounds of our historical, our past experiences. Mm. And so because we can't project our past into the future, we're like that patient with amnesia, right? All there is in the future is nothingness or mm. no thingness as Jean-Paul Sartre would say. Oh, child. Okay. Not the... <laughs> I can't keep up with all these dead French philosophers. Whew. I can't keep up with them. <laughs> Being and nothingness, nothingness. And nothingness. <laughs> uh, yeah, neither can I. I, but you know, I I like to throw in a little reference here, there. I've got a Derrida one for later. Oh, man. <laughs> oh, the one I've been avoiding. Oh. <laughs> yeah, you uh, need, to get into, need to get into that one. But... You know, I think I think that's why in this whole like what we'll call the white Anthropocene literature, which we've discussed why I'm saying that it's in episode episode five in season one. And we also talked about it in episode three of this season. I think there's like this orientation towards a quest for the past mm -hmm. or there's always a kind of nostalgia involved in how they're addressing our contemporary problems. And so I think that nostalgia helps people construct possibilities for the future. However, as we discussed in those episodes, nostalgia and turning the past only reproduces the same injustices and, and oppression. So it isn't liberatory for people like us, for marginalized people. Yeah. And I, we've talked about before, right, that Black people don't have the same relationship to the past as weird. What were weird? I would say what weird? because you're adding the white to it. Um, 
Right. Like what is no thingness in the future for people who are always already written as non-being, right? And so that's why in the Black feminist tradition, futurity is created through visionary work and radical speculation that moves us beyond simply surviving this world's always already apocalyptic anti-Black conditions, right? And towards imagining and realizing a future where Black people are free, and particularly free to live and thrive and not just survive. So in this beautiful essay, Caitlin Gunn writes that survival, quote, functions within ostensibly empowering rhetoric that stops Black women in the present moment or suspends us in history. And for me, I've really been thinking about survival as, you know, what what else is survival except returning home, Mm -hmm. right? And so, um, and that's for my dissertation, so, you know, if you want to take that question and run with it, do it. But I'm thinking about that, right? What else is, what does it mean to be survivor if not to return home in some sense, however home is constructed? Mm. And so maybe the language of survival as we think about the future will no longer serve us. Um, and I've talked about before that when we divest from these systems that we've inherited from the past, right, we can begin to realize a world where we do more than survive white supremacy, And I think a lot of the texts that people point to as Afrofuturists or as futurists, right, actually require that violence to still exist in order to imagine a future, as you were saying, right? How do we we take from the past to bring into the future? And and we'll talk about it later in what we're reading, um, because Joy James has a lot to say about Mm -hmm. that. Um, And so does Octavia Butler. But I, I don't know. Here I want to ask, like, you folks are listening, like, can we imagine a black future that is not deeply connected to our oppressive present, right? Like, is that possible for you, right? When you celebrate black joy or black excellence, right, is that purely connected to this history of our ancestors could never be recognized as top of their class, Hmm. right? Like when we celebrate these things, are we celebrating them as a future that's apart from the past or something that's like intimately connected to it? Um, and I think for us to begin to really think about radical black joy and abundance, like we have to come from a place that is not, we're excellent because our ancestors weren't able to be. Right. Um, cause that to me seems very liberal, but let me get on my soapbox anyway. Um, <laughs> I just want to know, right? Like what kind of being can we imagine outside of oppression? Because everything that I've been reading seems to want to just kind of copy paste or like copy paste and let me add some words so it's not technically plagiarism it's paraphrasing (laughs) (laughs) that I I think that's such a such a good point I think that there's always been something something Something. that bothered me about the way that the way that we're celebrated the way that we celebrate ourselves actually and it is like you didn't say this, but it's, it's what part of what you wrote. But like, it's always because we're beating the anti-black odds. So mm-hmm. even when we are celebrating our successes, celebrating our wins, celebrating all of the things that we've done, it's always in reference to whiteness and white supremacy. Mm-hmm. And that has always bugged me. <laughs> and right. now I have the words for it. Right. And I we kind of it. also understand the the like reason behind that, right? Yeah, this is. Gosh, I love doing this podcast. <laughs> yes, we do. 
and I mean, I'm going to talk about it later too, but in, even in thinking about futurity, Sharon Holland has an excellent book called Raising the Dead. And she talks about how all of these things around capitalism, oppression, et cetera, marginalization, right? You have people on the margin so that they can bear the brunt of, of whatever violence you're committing so that you can delude yourself into thinking that you can escape death in some way. And so a lot of times when we think about apocalyptic, I like to call it apocalyptic futures, hmm. <laughs> right? It's this... Wait, cryptic like you like can't be understood or crypt like... Oh, I just, the, just mean... The, wherever you die, like where people will put the dead. Oh, you know, that makes it sound really profound. I really just say it just <laughs> to mangle the word up, but... <laughs> wow, here take... I am trying to be deep. I'm like, oh... Look, no, you're not... You are not trying to be deep. You are actually being deep. I am not. Um, <laughs> but, like, so this this myth, right, that you can escape death by pushing it onto the, to the marginalized, which is what capitalism, patriarchy, ableism does, is it deludes people who are at the center into thinking that they are escaping death when the reality is that death is for all of us here, right? And so, well, if you are alive, death is for you. And so um, I think about that too when thinking about futurity, like, and as we're talking about imagining futures, it's, and I want to talk about like moving outside of oppression, right? We're not trying to push futures that just move oppressions to new margin, new sets of marginalized people. Mm-hmm. Right, we're trying to move outside of that. So this will be, I can't wait for our conversation with Jordan and Liberty. I'm excited. <laughs> I'm excited for it. Me too. So I think I want to go back to the essay that you brought up because it's a really great entry point into mm-hmm. Black feminist futurity, right? So Gunn, she talks about radical speculation and she explains that imagining futures, reclaiming histories and creating alternate realities is radical when, quote, we imagine futures unbound by ideologies and structures designed to delimit black lives. So basically what we've been saying, how can we imagine ourselves outside of oppression? So she demonstrates that the Kumbahi River Collective's assertion that black women's liberation is freedom for all oppressed people is a form of radical speculation. So this is this whole thing, radical speculation, this is not new y'all, okay? Our imagination, our expression, all of those things, that is our resistance to oppression. But it's also our way out of this white supremacist world. The more we try to assimilate, the more we stifle our possibilities for liberation. And there are so many examples of that too. Right? Audre Lorde told us that poetry is not a luxury, that the erotic is power. There's art and music, particularly in the Afro-futurist tradition, that help us to think, to start thinking and cultivating alternative futures. And just as a brief overview of Afrofuturism, right, it is a cultural aesthetic. And if you would like to understand that term more, check out season two, episode one, Liberation Don't Cost a Thing, uh, and a <laughs> philosophy of science and history that explores the possibilities of bringing together African diaspora cultures with technology. Authors, musicians, filmmakers, artists, and others create media that involve envisioning Black futures from Afro-diasporic experiences. It's commonly associated with science fiction, but of course, this can also be fantasy, alternate history, and speculative fiction, of course. And speaking of speculative fiction, that's the type of text that we chose to discuss today because as Adrian Marie Brown explains, speculative fiction is, quote, a way to practice the future together. 
And that is what we want to do with y'all. So let's move on to the next segment, what we're reading. So what we're reading today is Parable of the Sower by Octavia Butler. And as we mentioned earlier, we're also joined by the fabulous co-host of the podcast, Lose Your Sister, a podcast inspired by Saidia Hartman's Lose Your Mother. Their podcast centers Black feminist thought, pop culture, and diaspora with a focus on how Black people find their way back to one another interpersonally, artistically, and politically. Boom. So welcome to the Zoom studio, Jordan and Liberty. We're so happy to have you. Thank you for having us. Hey, hey. Hi, welcome, welcome. (laughs) So could you each just tell us who you are, your pronouns, and a bit about yourselves? Do you want to go first, Jordan? You could go first. (laughs) I'm I'm, I'm percolating. Who am I today? Oh, okay. (laughs) Why you decide that? (laughs) Okay, while Jordan decides who she is today, um, my name is Liberty. I use she, her pronouns. I recently graduated from Columbia University and um, where I studied comparative literature. Um, me and Alyssa met because we worked on the same journal. Um, and yes, I write and I broadcast. So I also hosted a radio show at school called Homesick. Oh, and I'm also, I'm from London. I'm, I'm from London, from <laughs> a Jamaican London. family. South London, exactly. So, <laughs> so yes, that's me. Alrighty, I've, I've centered and found myself again. Um, so my name is Jordan. <laughs> um, I use she, her pronouns. I am a writer with some things that I have published on occasion. <laughs> and um, I am a graduate student at Harvard studying uh, Black literature and like rhetoric. Um, and, you know, happy to be here. Um, and I'm from DC for, you know, folks who are from the DMV. You're about to say Harvard instead of Harvard, weren't you? <laughs> I almost did. Cause I was, I was actually, I was born at Howard, oh. quiet as it's kept. She was very much, I was born there. Like in a very literal know, sense? Or... <laughs> like literally my mother was pregnant with me sophomore year of college, oh, like cute. water broke in the door. Oh, wow. <laughs> like very much. Very much a scholar from birth. <laughs> that, no. that water is probably still sitting there. Oh, but, oh no. <laughs> no, honestly, like, like, I'm sorry, but the bison will have to answer for their crimes. <laughs> get them kids. Get them kids yeah. some housing. Please. Please some do. Home, free, Please safe do. housing. Also, I think this Oh, sorry. Huh? Oh, I was just going to say, I'm an Aquarius. Jordan's an Aries, if you want to understand the Zodiac formation of yes, this episode. the Aquarius are dominating today. Yes, Jamaican Aquarius is too. Hey, mm-hmm. hey. You see, I think this Ooh. would have been a really great time for us to do our Diaspora Wars episode that we've been promising, <laughs> but we literally <laughs> never do it. Uh, <laughs> but one day we will, and we will talk about Eidos, and it's going to be hilarious. Um, but oh yeah, liberty. Yeah. No. <laughs> like, you can invite us back. <laughs> I'm down with that. <laughs> <laughs> lol mess but yes as liberty said uh we worked on a journal we work on a journal together and i started listening to their podcast through her and honestly their podcast lose your sister y'all have me live tweeting the episodes i know you've seen them especially when you're talking about bridgerton i was dead but <laughs> rather than read theory like we do they take culture as a text and so they read, quote unquote, the Bridgerton series. They've read I May Destroy You, Soul, Oprah's interview of Meghan Markle, which was also hilarious. 
<laughs> and they offer reading lists with every episode. So it's just, it's just great. So I really want to know what was your inspiration for the podcast? Well, I wanted to do a podcast for a really long time, um, but I couldn't find a friend to co-host it with me. And then one day Jordan came to visit my college roommate and we'd met once before and we would DM each other all the time. Um, but we ended up having this very rich conversation about Mariah Carey and Beyonce, specifically Greenlight <laughs> by Beyonce. <laughs> um, and it was such a funny and critical conversation that I thought we would be great co-hosts together. And actually, at one point, Jordan said that B-Day was Beyonce's first visual album. And that's when I knew. I was like, I have to make <laughs> I was like, she's the one. <laughs> um, so I asked Jordan if she wanted to do a podcast together. And of course, she said yes. And then Jordan was actually the one who came up with the concept and title of Lose Your Sister. Yeah. So one, I just think B-Day being a huge part of our origin story is like very iconic. Um, then, I think it yep. says a lot about our taste and really like, you know, what we were giving from the jump. <laughs> um, and I also think it was just really cool because I think Liberty and I were always like just going back and forth in the DMs. And I think we were able to capture like some of that like chaotic brilliance that I think we had one-on-one <laughs> on one, onto the podcast um and the fact that we managed to like you know get it together and like have things even remotely organized I'm like very proud of us so far um and what we've been able to do and I just like am genuinely excited to like talk about everything we've talked about so far yes I I love that I think that Brendan and I have a very similar one in that we just took the conversations that we were having on WhatsApp because yeah. we are older than you all. <laughs> so we are having our conversations on WhatsApp. Um, we also used to use BBM at some point. But, really? Uh, yeah. No, not not together, but at some point in our lives. Oh, I was like, BBM? <laughs> I haven't had BBM in like 10 years at least. <laughs> Listen, I was using it when I was living in London, which was in 2015. So I'm not, we won't talk about it. Okay, so <laughs> moving on. Um, but yes, I'm really excited to have you all on the podcast since the first time I heard your podcast intro, which now I'm very pleased to know that Jordan was the one who created the concept, I'm sure with Liberty's input. I just, I felt so covered when I heard it. Thank so. you. You know, finding our way back to one another, the exercise of sisterhood and all that, it all spoke to me. But let's get to what we are actually here to talk about, which is Octavia Butler's Parable of the Sower. Take it away, Brandon. Yes. So we're going to do our usual bio and then Liberty and Jordan will offer us a summary of the book. And then after that, we're going to discuss some of the themes relevant to what we're talking about, which is what can Black futures look like? So today we are reading Parable of the Sower by Octavia Butler, the Cancerian Queen. For those of you who did not know, um, <laughs> Octavia E. Butler is a renowned writer who received the MacArthur Genius Grant and Penn West Lifetime Achievement Award for her body of work. She was the author of several award-winning novels, including Parable of the Talents, Parable of the Sower, um, Parable of the Talents won the Nebula for Best Novel. Her Afrofuturistic feminist novels and short fiction have only become more relevant in, in the end times, quote unquote. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, she is no longer with us in this room, but she is with us in the ancestral room. She passed away on February 24th, 2006. Mm -hmm. Rest in peace. Okay, so here's a rundown of the novel. 
Butler's Parable of the Sower follows a teenage black girl named Lauren Oya Olamina in the year 2024. She lives in a gated community in California with her father, a Baptist pastor, her stepmother and her stepbrothers. Lauren's biological mother struggled with drug abuse during her pregnancy and as a result she was born with hyper empathy which means she deeply feels emotions of others. For example, if Lauren sees someone who is hurt she also feels that pain. She can also feel pleasure as well. And beyond the gates of Lauren's community is a not so dystopian world where most people are poor, homelessness is rampant, climate change has restructured society and resource accessibility, sexual violence is commonplace, indebted servitude has reshaped social dynamics, police are not to be trusted, and an authoritarian zealot has been elected president. Though she has been raised within the walls of her community to follow the gospel and preserve their way of life, Lauren is convinced of the inevitable deterioration of a safe haven and begins to prepare herself to travel north. Slowly but surely, the outside world creeps into Lauren's community. Her stepbrother falls in with a group of thieves who later kill him. And one day, her father mysteriously disappears and is presumed dead. When the security of her community is breached once and for all, Lauren must strike out with a group of survivors in search of safety and new possibilities. Disguising herself as a man on their journey, Lauren is strategic and freedom-minded. Grounded in a belief system, she develops a self called Earthseed, which is rooted in the idea that God is change. Lauren emerges over the course of the novel as a leader, gaining followers, and founding the first Earthseed community, Acorn. Thank you. Thank you for that summary. I just feel like, where should we begin? I really have so many things to say, but where would y'all like to start? I say, let's start with my girl, Lauren. You know, like she's Mm -hmm. our entry point into this world. And I know for me, when I was going through the book, I kept thinking a lot about Joy James's essay on Octavia Butler and the captive maternal, where she described Butler's protagonists as those for whom, quote, creativity will be the hallmark of their matrix, intimacy and emotional intelligence, theorizing and political agency. Um, And thinking through Toni Morrison's beloved alongside representations of children in Butler's work, James also wrote, it seems that only the black female child has the power to destabilize the captive maternal, both seek to be free. And I don't know, I keep wrestling with that, trying to think through like what it means for Parable of the Sower and to have this like teenage black girl at the center. Mm. Yeah. And the essay that Jordan is referencing is called Captive Maternal Love, Octavia Butler and Sci-Fi Family Values by the queen of reading, um, (laughs) Joy James. And so... She also begins that essay by stating that the Black female protagonist provides mirrors where the marginalized see themselves in narratives, windows, where the normative look inside worlds that overlap their own, and sliding glass doors that permit passage. And so what I think about Lauren as a teenage Black girl, right, I think about how her character actually provides us with all three of these things. She's the mirror for folks like us who once were black teenage girls and having to save our families and our communities, right? She's a window for the normative looks. So the non-black people who may have different experiences who are like, OMG, Octavia Butler predicted the future. Like, look, Mm -hmm. like, look at this. But we all know that what she really predicted or saw was the inevitable, Mm -hmm. right? Based on where she was. Mm -hmm. And... Through Lauren's vision for Earthseed, right, we also see that sliding glass door, not just to the present, but also to a future outside of this mess. I think one of the things that I want to talk about is 
is it really realistic that Lauren is a teenager, right? I mean, even in the foreword, N.K. Jemisin is like, ah, this girl sounded like a teenager that an adult would think a smart teenager sounds like. And that was kind of one of the things I had thinking about. I was like, I was not like that <laughs> as a teenager. <laughs> on the one hand, I, I know that young people, of course, are often the drivers of social change. But on the other, I'm like, who is this visionary and who is this forward thinking when they're 15 to 18 years old? I most certainly was not. But then I think about, you know, as Brennan mentioned in our conversation that we had before we recorded, what is time in this world where survival is your baseline? Yeah. And I think we also have to consider that for a lot of like black firstborn girl children, they tend to be thinking on different levels all the time. Like as as a first child of my mother, I had to learn how to take care of a whole family by the time I was like five. Mm. And you see and that, so in, that you see that in the in the book as well, the way that she takes care of her yeah. younger brothers, and she she's teaching in this in her um, stepmother's classes in school. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So I think like it's only fair to, well, not only fair. Let me not say it like that, but I think it would be very realistic to, that she would be this way at fifteen, considering the world, considering her own hyper empathy, which I know we're going to talk about a little bit too and then just like just how shit is I think it's very realistic yeah. yeah um I also think that Butler purposely writes in this interesting naivety with um Lauren um because she theorizes so much about the outside world and what she needs to do and multiple characters point out to her that actually we've lived outside and you haven't so there are certain things that you may not um be familiar with or um, there's a lot more for you to learn. Um, mm. And I think sometimes it does come off, come off as condescending or insulting, but other times there is a, um, a good point that there are things that Lauren doesn't know. And I think she's also aware of what she doesn't know, which is how she's able to navigate or finesse her way through certain situations. Mm. Yeah, I think it also, like, to me at least, something I was thinking about throughout the book was just the way that like centering this black girl also like brings back up questions about how the category of the child are always already imperiled, like where black people are concerned and mm -hmm. how like in the context of parable, the apocalypse puts all those, like all these categories in into question, right? Like age, sex, race, all these things are kind of in, in this kind of soup that everybody has to kind of figure out in this new world. Um, and that in some ways, like people who experience anti-Blackness are like maybe a little more familiar with the disruption of those categories. And we see this of like mm -hmm. how young some of the Black Panthers have been, like Fred Hampton died at 21. I know not yeah. a teenager, but died at 21. There were definitely teenagers in the Black Panther Party and they were living mm -hmm. in their own dystopia um, that drove them to revolutionary um, ideologies. Mm. This is a very good point. I think, and I, th but one of the things that I think you also see is that life inexperience, like inexperience with life, right? Like her dad is, her dad says, you can't just scare people into trying to change or trying to do what you want, right? You need to teach them into changing. And even though she's like, I don't really agree with how my father sees the world, particularly through religion, and that's why I'm starting Earthseed, I think that the way that she, uh, that she starts kind of 
constructing Earthseed demonstrates how much of an influence he had on mm. her thinking and on her on her approach to this this new religion, this new community building. Yeah, like I think she definitely makes some teenage decisions towards the beginning, like telling that white girl, <laughs> "Oh, this is my plan." Like just be like, "Oh, you know, like, because Butler says very simply at the beginning that, like, you know, race, racism, anti-blackness, whatever still exists, right? Even within their community, mm-hmm. you have people who are like, oh, well, I don't really fuck with y'all because y'all are Latinx or I don't fuck with y'all because y'all are this, right? And so I think she makes kind of these, like, childish decisions, but being put in these very adult situations. I don't, I, I really find Lauren to be fascinating and I, I think because I project a lot of myself onto her so I'm right. like oh yeah like for sure <laughs> this is exactly how I would be as a 15 year old at the end of the world <laughs> that's, the, that's that gifted mind because I know I was not <laughs> I was like does like, this boy like me that was me <laughs> I mean you think that too as you're like okay so this is how things gonna go I'm gonna pack my go bag you know and worry about Curtis oh later. no I found my diary from when I was nine years old and it was the most vapid thing i i ripped it up and threw it out no i, like, I am embarrassed it. that i ever nope nope did not want that for posterity at all not at all no i, I think nice. also you, oh no i just think sometimes it's uh, nice to like see like see how you've grown and like how you've changed and what things like maybe like you know you cared about back then it was all vapid and shallow and I was embarrassed. I read it again just to be like, wow. And then I threw it away. You were nine. Was <laughs> <laughs> I was like, what else is the nine you want me to do? <laughs> um, I think, um, oh, I was going to also say to bring this back to Parable of the Sower. We also see people, at least what I observe people do to Lauren is try to kind of put her in a child's place at times um like I'm trying to think about the moment where she's like talking to Corey about Keith and how she's like trying to warn her stepmother that this that something else is going on but she knows not to say too much because she's perceived that Corey is in love with Keith and he's not worth you know not in love in the sense of mothers Mm -hmm. they love their sons Mm -hmm. kind of thing um and how Corey tries to kind of like stamp her down or tamper down a little bit. Um, but then her father intervenes and then ends, ends up like beating him. And I think about there is this tension between Lauren and the other adults who are not willing to see the world as it is because they want the world to be what it used to be. Um, and I wanted to know like, because I'm, I wanted to know what y'all thought about that kind of generational tension there. Um. I definitely related to it. Um, I definitely understand how, as you get older, you become more jaded and you also have to worry about other things. For instance, like on top of Corey having, well, um, Corey's favorite child being Keith. She also has, um, is it like three other kids to worry about as well as Lauren? Mm -hmm. She doesn't really, I don't feel like like she ever really worries about Lauren because Lauren Mm -hmm. just takes care of herself. Yeah. Um, but yeah, she's got like these um bunch of other kids that she has to worry about, um, as well as um the school that because she, she teaches in the um little community school. 
and other modes of survival um as well about as well as the husband and herself so I understand why she doesn't have as much like space for um revolutionary ideas or even time to acknowledge it um and then I also think there is the conversation um the condes- condescending attitude towards a child of like what do you know whereas like mm. Lauren as a child of more free time and less experience and also no knowledge of what life was like before because Lauren was born into <laughs> this chaos and so she only has space to dream about the future whereas and like future possibilities mm. whereas the older generations seem to think about going back to how things were and I think even um there's a line where it says that Corey just wants is just waiting for things to just return to normal and Lauren's like normal doesn't exist we can only push forward um mm. so yeah that's only within a young oh no, not only but I think that's mostly within like a younger person's purview because you have the time to like even write out a new religion as Lauren does mm. I also wonder like if things in some ways like Lauren's like efforts to like you know you know strike out on her own or strike out with other survivors like also like over time she becomes like she kind of re emerges as becoming a part of a unit like a a kind of community unit but like in order for Mm -hmm. that first moment to happen where like you know the security is breached in that community she she's making those first moves as someone who's lost her entire family so like her familial structure is like completely dissolved and that's like the impetus for her like her freedom journey in the book so I also wonder if there's a way that like the actual familial structure is also like part of what the the like novel is getting at in terms of like mm. it creating this like false notion of like security and investment in a particular kind of model mm. and that once it falls apart you actually have to face the like chaos of like of just like human life in a certain way yeah I didn't even <laughs> I didn't think about that I think the thing that I did think about was this kind of I just ain't like losing her entire family and then having to create on it read very read like a very queer experience mm. of things for some folks who mm. have to lose their entire families in order to live and move on and, and dream up new possibilities. And so maybe that's one of the, what do you call it? Subtext, mm. maybe? It's this kind of like, this critique of this normative family structure that is supposed to be protective, right? Um, but what happens when you expel your disabled, like, Black child, you know? Or by or necessity, like she's basically expelled from it, like through necessity. Right. Um, I think we can also talk about like how um, we discuss Parable of the Sower today versus like when mm. it came out, because this book is mm-hmm. almost 20. Yeah. No, it's over 20 years old. Um, yeah. Almost 30 years old. Because um, I think it was um, disrespectful. It was 1993. Okay, which means it almost 30? it's <laughs> damn damn near thirty. Why 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 are you hurting people in this room? <laughs> why are I you hurting people yourself. in the Zoom room? Like, I, I was just I was just stating facts. Like I, I, my, my point was this when sometimes since it came out and so there's different reactions to how it came out. Pushing, <laughs> she's pushing thirty. She's pushing thirty. <laughs> And I'm saying she's yeah. She and I are in our Saturn return. (laughs) Like the the book is 28 years old. (laughs) 
<laughs> so so actually, you're right, Brendan. This book is also having its Saturn return. Yes, it's because I have an, and yes. I think it's interesting how it's perceived then versus how it's perceived now, especially um with the Trump administration um mm. happening in like obviously twenty sixteen and onwards. Um and the fact that like John Green is on the facade of the book. Um, which I guess because John Green is a YA novel, um, a novelist, um, also directs a book to younger generations, which is interesting, something we can talk about. But yeah, the book often gets paired with, well, John Green specifically pairs it with 1984 and The Handmaid's Tale. Mm-hmm. Um, which because do you know? Oh, do you know how it was talked about before? No, not was as- it talked about before? I don't know. I I remember not hearing about this book until um, Trump came into power because people, Mm -hmm. because of course the slogan, Make America Great Again, is in the novel. Um, And Trump wasn't the first person to do that. Um, I think Reagan, I don't even think Reagan was the first person to do that. Yeah. Does the slogan predate Reagan? I feel like it might or something similar. From what I know, it was was Reagan. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I think I'm going to start my rant now. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I mean, people, ever since that time, people have called this book, or at least this book series, particularly prescient, right? Mm -hmm. They were like, oh, this foreshadowed Trump and this foreshadowed all of these other things. But as you were saying, Liberty, Trump was not the first person to say, make America great again. It was Ronald Reagan. It might have even predated him. And so there's always this, this odd desire to make America great again when was it great someone tell me i don't know maybe in the 90s <laughs> <laughs> maybe in the Ooh. 90s when everyone was rich bill clinton um oh not bill clinton lordy <laughs> not but but i think on that front this book shows us two things and one which is very clear is she's not writing what she's writing about is not entirely the future right like i think someone said she takes it to she takes like what was going on in her life her experience um to its kind of logical conclusion and things like that but it's also not the future it's also the past repeating itself and then it's this present that's being applied to the u.s it's like all of these things that we're doing today but happening in america so people can see themselves in it and so it made me think of um, discourse on colonialism. Mm. And Amos Cesare writes that what the white man cannot forgive Hitler for is, quote, the fact that he applied to Europe colonialist procedures, which until then had been reserved exclusively for the Arabs of Algeria, the coolies of India, and the niggers of Africa, end quote. And so the reason that it feels so prescient to the people who are taking it up now, because I'm pretty sure everyone who does the pull quote well, you don't know where the pull quotes are all from, but John Green, but then it's also like the New York Times and the Denver Post and the New Yorker. Mm-hmm. So obviously they're trying to like pitch this to the whites. Yeah. And <laughs> the whites also, and the weirds. It's also been reprinted, um, but this is a new yes. edition. Yeah. So yeah, that, that's the copy I have. I have the reprinted mm-hmm. copy. Um, and so the reason that it feels so prescient to them, uh, you know, the people who among whom like the book is circulating is because like, this could be them in the future. These are things that are happening now, but that could possibly happen to them. And if you think about it, the debt slavery is basically 
how we're all going to university. Well, not me because I'm Canadian, but oh, okay. <laughs> well, Damn. Um, <laughs> wow, wow, wow. Laugh at my game. <laughs> Laugh at my game. <laughs> but it's like, it's not, but for real, it's people taking out loans. And I think we're hearing a lot now um, with all this, the possibility of debt relief, right? Of student debt relief. Um, people have so many loans that they'll never be able to stop working. The border work that they talk about in the book, that some of the um, some of the formerly enslaved, they're talking about the border work where Canadian and Asian factories in the U.S. they kill and maim people for low pay. Um, you know, working in these factories. That's what's happening right now in mines in Africa and sweatshops in South Asia and Latin America, right? And so, of course, the slavery is American slavery, the plantation slavery of the past, which, as we talked about in a previous episode, is our current, our present, and our future. Mm -hmm. And one thing I wanted, okay, as an aside, I'm going to have a lot of asides, but I think it's interesting that in the parable world, the slavers want people who have hyper-empathy and who can feel other people's pain. But then in history, slavers wanted, they believed that enslaved Africans didn't feel pain or emotions. So... I don't know if that's all something that we can expand on and think about, but maybe that's just me working overtime in my mind. Look, <laughs> affect, you know that's mine. That's, that's your thing. bag. That's your that's bag. My bag. Um. <laughs> so, but yes, all of this to say, like, time is recursive. It repeats itself, but differently. And, you know, difference in repetition. That's my Derrida reference. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. <laughs> but that's what she's showing, right? She's showing that there's repetition with difference. And, it, and there's also, I think you were saying that there are two things that you wanted to mention, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm slow. Um, so the second thing is that Butler shows us that things that were once impossible may one day be viewed as prescient. Right. Mm -hmm. So we need to start shaping change and shaping our future and thinking in ways that are not limited by what we are told is possible. Right. The impossible is the possible not yet done. So. Oh, wow. <laughs> so oh, wow. we can start. We also need to start shaping change. Right. Like people are like, oh, the stuff that's happening in this book would never happen. The things that are happening in The Handmaid's Tale would never happen. And we're slowly starting to see the erosion of those rights that could lead to those kinds of situations now. Mm. Also, the things in this book have happened because um, Butler yeah. makes very um, explicit comparisons to slavery. And at one point, because um, as they collect people, as their group sort of um, grows, as people start to join them, there are um, run literally runaway slaves who come and join mm -hmm. them from different mm -hmm. um, company towns. And Lauren actually says we have a underground um, railroad situation going on. Um, and the way that they the way that they <laughs> describe um, the way that mothers lose their children um, and the working conditions is very clearly an allusion to chattel slavery. And so I think it's interesting that in imagining like the worst po possible situation butler goes backwards um and so yes i think that time is not only recursive but we also like to think of time as sort of um just progression an upper slope um mm. i think after mm -hmm. obama became president that was definitely the um 
version of history that was given to me like growing up and then Trump disrupted that um so yes and that's also a, a critique of Handmaid's Tale is like the situation that the handmaids um are in is just what slave women enslaved women dealt with experience yeah yeah and of course but except in the book they there were no people of color there were no black people they just changed it for the show but oh yeah that's another conversation <laughs> yeah and, look, and I, that's yeah what's her the margaret atwood or whatever mm-hmm. is under fire for a lot of things right yeah now, so i don't even want to talk about the um I'm bringing it up, but I don't want to talk about it, which is the <laughs> the Man Booker Prize. Oh, wait, much. okay, don't bring that up because I'll get angry. <laughs> and Bernadine Everisto no. sharing the Booker Prize with Margaret Atwood. Don't even get me upset. Yeah, okay. okay. Yeah. But yeah. okay, but anyways, before we get too much into it, what yeah. what do you all think about this whole idea of Octavia Butler predicting the future? She's so prescient. She's Miss Cleo. Yeah, but for real, I don't know. Something that always annoyed me about the whole like Octavia predicts the future. That's so Octavia like Raven Baxter narrative that oh, everyone shoot. was like, <laughs> like putting on to Octavia Butler. Like particularly with the like reprinting of this book, is that it feels very connected to the like Black women will save us. Listen to Black women discourses that I feel like generally we're kind of mm-hmm. romanticizing this like narrative of Black women as like saviors. Um, but like, in my opinion, weren't really invested in like, one, the knowledge that Black women had to offer, but also I think we're so committed to situating it as some kind of like clairvoyant outside like information Mm -hmm. rather than like information that was grounded in like reality. Um, Like that perhaps she was just like looking outside and was like, this is like, this is what it's giving as opposed to her having to be like, I had a vision. Um, I think, I think maybe like, I think even the point that you made about like what makes it like, like something in the future versus something that's happening now. I think the, the need to project this like futurity onto what she was doing, I think feels like an effort to distance themselves from how close we actually are to the things she was describing in the first place. Mm. That's true. I mean, she, there's an interview in the back of the new, um, of the new edition where she's talking about, well, how did she, how did you come up with um, the whole idea that God has changed? How did you come up with earth seed? How did you come up with these things? And she was like, I paid close attention and I, to what was going on. And then I thought a lot about, you know, what's the most powerful force in the universe? What's, what's something that nobody can influence? And she went with change and she was also just paying attention to what was happening. She was learning about history. She was learning about, um, you know, what was what people were talking about on the news. Yeah. And she has even said, like, I'm not a prophet. I'm just paying attention. Yes. <laughs> She's like, go pay attention to. <laughs> She's like, look outside the window. Touch grass. Like, very Touch much grass. giving weather, Touch girl. Grass. She's like, girl, it's raining. Girl, it's raining. <laughs> There's a 5% chance that the rain is already here. So, you know, I, yeah, I think I'm sitting with what you all are saying. And for me, similar to what you said, Jordan, about this being like a listen to black women kind of moment. It also points to, um, and Alyssa and I were talking about this earlier, um, Sharon Holland's book, Raising the Dead, where she like, she talks about how death is displaced on to marginalized people to give 
folks who are not marginalized the delusion that they do not have to experience death in the same way or that they don't experience death and they escape it. And I think what Octavia Butler does in this novel so masterfully is like bring death to you. Like, Mm. this is it. Like, this is it. This is here. You have to face this. So now that you know that you have fucked up this world in the way that capitalism only was going to do, I don't know, you know, this delusion that people have that this like, the resources were so unlimited and, all, you know, we were always going to be able to bathe for an hour a day while people on the other side of the world were not going to get what they needed. Like, and that's just how things were going to be until the end of time. Um, and now we're seeing that really crumble with like gas prices already rising. Like when I read that mm-hmm. part, I was like, girl, gas already too high. <laughs> <laughs> already too high. Um what they say this uh, summa cum laude <laughs> gas <laughs> oh no that's <laughs> like, like I need some <laughs> look and if you drive it's hard out here um, especially when you're not paying for regular gas and so I I was like I okay Miss Diesel Miss <laughs> <laughs> <This> Super 95 <laughs> flex on us <laughs> flex on us I'm just saying I'm just saying, I'm just saying it's hard when you're not paying for regular gas. And so I'm like, you can already see these things happening. And I can imagine from her chair in 1990 or whenever she was writing this, like being like, oh, the only logical conclusion for us moving jobs overseas or for our economy to be based on the exploitation of people all over the world and people within this nation is this, right? We can only return to slavery, Um, We can only return to, and you talked about earlier, sexual violence being commonplace. Like, Mm. that is the reality now. We just don't have, we don't see naked people walking up and down the street who've been, like, but that's the reality. Mm. Um, So I think, yeah, this recursivity, I think, as you were saying, Liberty, just really points to this, the fallacy of linear progress Mm. as something Mm. that we can actually achieve through white supremacist capitalist ideology there is no linear progress Mm. in that um ideology um yeah i think we can pivot to thinking about community in this novel and like how it shows up Mm. and one of the things that we really talk about here on the podcast is community like we think of it as like a central black feminist and abolitionist principle that is foundational to creating new worlds and we can tell from the novel right literally the novel centers lauren in different communities creating communities we know that she values community and she understands the importance of working together Um, and that becomes even more important for her when her community that she was born into is destroyed which is something that she did foresee. She said, you know, people out here hopping fences, daddy. <laughs> Don't you think we need to prepare? And he was like, oh, oh I don't know about that. And then he went missing. Um, Damn. He, um, yeah, so Lauren really values community. And I think that's something that we continue to come back to. As we were talking about earlier, just like how these different communities are are built, what principles they're built upon. How is it that a teenager is able to start a whole new world? Um, I don't know. I think it's just because she's black. I think that's, that is what makes it possible. But I wanted to know what y'all thought about this like theme of community mm. in the novel. I think for me, like something I really sat with a lot in the piece is like the relationship between um, Lauren and Bancole. 
like the the man that um I guess she starts Earthseed with, but also who is like not a believer um, and who is like almost 60 years old. So he's like significantly older than her. Um, but it's really interesting, like his willingness to support her in, in the project that she's trying to create in this new world that she's trying to build, even though he doesn't believe in what, um, in what it is. Like he has his own faith practice. And it reminded me a lot of a quote from June Jordan in Civil Wars, where she talks about how like, when we get the monsters off our backs, we may want to go in different directions. And I feel like mm -hmm. it like is something I always go back to when I think about community, because I'm always very interested in like what it means for black people to feel connected or not connected to each other. Mm -hmm. um, and I thought there was something really interesting about the fact that like they are in this struggle to get the monsters off of their backs, but it's also there's an honesty about the fact that they they don't actually want to go in the same direction. They don't want the same things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, even what you're saying, the monsters on our backs, a lot of what folks build a community around or can build community around is experiences of oppression mm -hmm. or their violent experiences. Like, I think as a survivor of, well, I don't really call myself a survivor anymore, but in, to enter into the community of survivor of intimate partner violence mm -hmm. or interpersonal violence, right? There, That wound becomes then what you connect and build community around. Mm -hmm. And that can be can be limiting it can be freeing it could be something that allows you to express yourself but it could also be very limiting in the sense that you don't really know who you are outside of this so i think i think that's a really interesting question right like what draws black people to each other or not like what if because we all know those people who may look black but may not identify as black and they see themselves as not a part of a, a black community for whatever reason um and do we take that as valid? I mean, I don't know. I, I'll answer that question not on the mic, but. <laughs> or even when we're violent <laughs> towards each other, because I think a big mm. um, issue within the black community when I was an undergrad was that um, the black men were, black cishet men either weren't pulling their weight or were, yeah, dangerous to the black woman. And so I definitely found myself more in community with, um black women or gender bearing mm -hmm. people um and definitely like queer people rather than um the black <laughs> heteros <laughs> so yeah I think it's it's difficult to see how you are drawn to people and also I didn't have that much of like a racial connection with people in the UK I definitely like now most of my friends here are black mm. whereas that ne that's not necessarily the case when I was back home in London um there's a bit more mm. racial heter heterogeneity interesting actually I did want to ask you how that works how is there a quote-unquote black community in London in the same way that there is in the US and in, in New York and in South Carolina and right. all these kinds of things. Um, I think the main difference is that um, there wasn't an official segregation law in the UK as there was in the US. They wanted to segregate people in the UK, but the government around the Windrush period, which is like post-war, post-World War II, they were like, we don't want these colors near us, but we can't say that on a national stage because then we'll get flax. So how are we going to do this <laughs> without Wow. Yeah, putting it in law. And there's actually memos that basically say that. Um, 
and so the community that I grew up in was heavily um, black and it was usually African and Caribbean people and heavily South Asian. Um, but it wasn't as segregated as it is in the um, US where I found myself like mostly with black people and also our friendships being a foundation of like, also being a PWI, a foundation of relationship was like me and you are in the only black people in the room we're going to sit together. Mm-hmm. And then if we click, this is a relationship that we can build and it's going to last for much longer. Um, growing up in Croydon, where I was, there was a lot of other Black people. So it wasn't that wasn't a need to be foundational in a friendship. And so even though I also have a lot of Black friends in um, London, I also had friends who were like Asian. There weren't that many white people, but a few white friends. <laughs> so um, yeah, it's a very different experience. Right. Interesting. It is something that I've noticed living here that I can go places and not see any white people and I can go places and not see Mm. any black people Mm. or any people of color. And I just, it's something that I've found really striking. But yes, to bring it back to community and the kinds of bonds that we create with people and what they are based on, I think that we want to leave people with that question that Brendan mentioned earlier, which was what kind of being, what kind of life can we imagine outside of oppression? Mm -hmm. So instead of having these trauma bonds with each other, what kinds of bonds of joy and abundance can we have? Mm. Joy bonds. Joy Mm. bonds, happiness. I don't know. Let's, Let's think about that. Let's sit with that while we segue into our next segment, which is what? What? What in the world? What in the world, <laughs> in the world? <laughs> is going on? So, this episode came to me this summer during the July heat wave when CNN reported that an estimated 1 billion shellfish cooked to death in the ocean off the coast of British Columbia due to extreme heat. And so I was like, okay, nah. A billion? Now we outie. Yeah, they, that's what the yeah. estimate is. A billion shellfish. It's a lot of seafood. Not a lot okay. of seafood that I, we, we get it from the now. DMV. <laughs> Let me get my old bay. Oh my goodness. Anywhere. I just learned what that is. I had my first crab boil with Brendan few months ago anyways i okay so i heard about this i had never had climate anxiety before but that news story sent me i was finished okay i was finished i was like this is the end it's over clams mussels and other sea life are dying in their natural habitat like if it's over for them it's over for us too yeah. so that's where this episode idea came from <laughs> We needed to talk about the end of the world, but we needed to find another another entry point into it. And one that is a little bit more, I was going to say optimistic, but we could get into some conversations that shows that this is not, it's not all optimistic. Yeah, I have perpetual mm-hmm. climate anxiety. So I'm just like, because when I was in the school, when we were learning about climate change. I was like, oh, that's crazy for my grandchildren when they're adults and I'm long gone, but now I'm like, oh, shit. 
Oh no, it's me. Yeah, it's, it's me. <laughs> it's me. What happens when the death that we push onto others comes comes to us? We are face to face with it. Um, yeah, that's real. I think well also one thing that this demonstrates if we think about like a billion selfish cooking to death, it's just how manufactured this like food scarcity thing is. Um, like capitalism and all of its ills, white supremacy and all of its ills, could mess this world up enough, like billions, billions of shellfish and sea life done. Mm-mm. And like, I mean, even thinking about climate change and things like that, like climate and COVID are now impacting us in the US a year and a half, year and some change after because of supply chain chain issues. Mm-hmm. Have y'all experienced mm-hmm. that? Yeah. Grocery stores and things like that. It's really bad in Britain because, well, actually, that's more due to Brexit, but there's like an oil shortage because there's not enough drivers to transport the oil. Um, but I think, mm-hmm. as well as COVID, that's also to do with Brexit. So that's another man- man made problem. And still, they're just trying to find solutions to the problems that they're facing rather than looking for other ways of living. That's that's yeah. the thing that always gets me. They're like, oh, we're out of oil. Like, how can we stabilize Venezuela so we can get oil from Venezuela? How about we start using solar panels? That you've been how about we start inst- How about we start installing so- solar panels? Like, when I saw that they just put a bunch of solar panels in the desert in Morocco, I was like, we're getting somewhere. I have not heard one thing about it since. <laughs> I'm like there are literally yeah, places. I don't know what happened. All the time. I don't even know what happened because they definitely was talking about solar solar power all the time for like a couple years, and then they just put them in the closet and went right back to everything else. I thought that we was really about to see some solar power like widespread stuff, right. and we really did not see that. Well, I mean, I think part of that is how the U.S. maintains control over other countries around the world is through oil. So when we start thinking about mm-hmm. alternative futures, right, it has, it, we really have to think about what would the end of imperialism look like yeah. for us? Mm. Um, and how, how can we in our own individual selves help bring about an end to imperialism? I don't have a question for, I don't have an answer for that besides not joining the military, but um I don't know. I feel like also my black ass should not have to come up with all the answers to these questions. So I'm also going to say <laughs> What's that. What's that, uh, that tweet that's like, I'll serve Christ. I'll serve <laughs> yes. Wait, what, what was it? Say it again. The tweet is like, I'll serve crack before I serve this country. <laughs> I was like. Oh, no. Oh, my God. I was like, that's, that's the spirit. That's, that's the spirit. You're getting closer. I was like, you're getting closer. As praxis. Yes, as praxis. <laughs> That's another. That's that needs to be one of our what's the words is praxis because that's another thing you can just start adding it to the ends of sentences to make it sound more black feminist. Yeah, yeah that's what people be doing. I do it all yeah. the time. That's how I learned praxis. praxis. I had to Google. <laughs> My friend said it, and I had to like turn away and Google it. Uh, but there, so in in that essay um, that we talked about earlier, I didn't. I did, actually didn't send it to you all, but. Um, the author, she she has a footnote and she talks about Adrian Marie Brown's um, emergent strategy. And she she quotes from that book and she says, Africans leap, leaping off 
of slaver ships were Afrofuturists. Slaves mm -hmm. who ran to freedom and slaves who ran to their deaths were Afrofuturists. The paths of futurism and desire do not always lead to survival, right? And so part of what I think that a lot of what we're trying to do is like, oh, how can we, how we, how can we continue to live? Like part of us just needs to, we just need to escape. We just need to be fugitive, do this thing, get out of here and not trying to save the people who are not trying to save themselves. Period. That's that's the point I'm in. I'm like, I'm done explaining things to people. You go figure it out. <laughs> Google is free on your friends. So yeah. I'm okay. But I think Brendan, you 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 mentioned the um the labor the labor shortage. Or not labor shortage. What did you say again? Oh, the um the child the chain oh child. The supply chain supply chain, supply, supply chain thing. <laughs> the shortage that everybody keeps talking about. Mm -hmm. Why grocery stores are running out of things. And part of that is a labor shortage. They don't have enough people to drive trucks. So then now they're trying to recruit high schoolers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so I mean, like truck driving. So this is another thing that they're doing. They're like, how can I find a solution? How can we could find a solution by recreating what we already have rather than doing something new? Mm. An example of that is last week, the Wisconsin Senate, they approved a bill that would allow people who are under 16 to work as late as 11 p.m. Mm -mm. And so for them, they're like, this is going to help us with our, later, uh, with our labor shortage that the state is having. But then at the same time, it's like upending, eroding these child labor laws, right? So federally, the child labor laws say that under 16s are supposed to stop work at 9 p.m. or 7 p.m., depending on the time of year. And so here we are. We're starting to see it, right? Lauren talks about this in the book. The state starting to infringe on labor laws. They don't even really know what the laws are in, in that world. But they're infringing on these labor laws. And so rather than, so what we're seeing now is rather than them raising the minimum wage to increase the workforce, they'd rather have 14-year-olds working until 11 p.m. And it's like, y'all could just pay. And one of the important things to note about Wisconsin is that the minimum wage for minors is seven twenty five an hour, and companies can pay them four dollars and twenty five cents an hour mm -hmm. for the first ninety days of employment. We don't live in a society; we live in an economy. Period. I mm -hmm. this reminds me of that tweet where someone was like, "Y'all doing all of this to earn eight more dollars an hour than your ancestors." Ooh. <laughs> Um, and when I saw that, I said, ooh, let me log off. <laughs> no. No, let me log off. Let me. I don't even know what else to say now. Like. No, because I hate slavery. <laughs> this is the ghetto. This is the ghetto. But we doing all of this to earn a few more dollars an hour than our ancestors. Like, Norwich, uh, Norwich Trump. And that doesn't even take into account inflation. Mm-mm. So technically, even really truly, we're not even working for a few more dollars. We're working for probably cents more, considering how much the dollar was worth back then. Oh, uh, don't get me doing math, because Lord knows <laughs> I'm not giving women in STEM. But... <laughs> you must know our limit. But it's not adding up. It's not mm -mm. adding up. Somebody ain't doing the, the math, math right. Not mathing. No, math emancipation mathing. was a non-event. It's kind of non-event. <laughs> Oh, I can't. Yeah, this, is, this is just recursive. depressing. 
I know Brendan's gonna have to say something uplifting at the end of the episode. Oh, <laughs> but I'm thinking on it. No, it's really sick. And like I think thinking about like this labor conversation has also gotten me thinking a lot about like the housing crisis that's going on right now. And like I've recently been following a lot of stories like in Boston, like since I moved here about like the homeless encampments. And there's one in particular like near here that's referred to as like methadone mile mm. where there are like a lot of people struggling with like houselessness, mental health and addiction. And local officials recently announced a plan to like clean up the area starting this week. Um, and they're already talking about police being prepared to use force for removals. Mm. Um, but there's been like no clear initiative to ensure even temporary housing for the people that will be displaced. Um, and it's just like a reminder to me of like how much like money and property like rules everything here and like like community and care like accountability justice like are just like the farthest thing from the minds of people that are in power and and like our society writ large like it's just kind of like wild to me that they're just gonna like like I mean, it's, I think the encampment has almost like 200 tents at this point. Oh so it's God. a lot of people. Um, and it's like, where where are they going to yeah. go? It's the same in the UK as well, um, because the government has um, increased taxes for um, people of lower incomes. And we have universal credit, but it's like there's been cuts to that as well. And so I recently mm. saw um, Channel 4 News does a um dispatch um dispatches documentary um series and it was on homeless people um and I think there's like 750,000 people living below the poverty line in the UK mm. um child poverty is at a high and also a lot of families are there's lots of overcrowded housing so a lot of um multiple families living in one home which is what we actually see in um Parable of the Sower in the community is like very common for right. yeah multiple families to live in one house um because you can't afford to live elsewhere so yeah we are very very close to the realities of the book hmm I'm, I'm thinking about what you said jordan about um property and capital money the economy as you were saying Alyssa, we don't live in a society and it kind of be prioritized over community and care accountability and justice and i feel like though there are certain communities that are being uplifted and it's just like not the shit that we invited to um Hmm. and so i think like a lot of times when people talk about the powers that be that shape the world they don't understand they aren't willing to admit that these are like a set of choices that people are making Mm -hmm. um and that like you can make choices not to do these things or like create the world in this way and I think that like the parable of the sower and the things that we're talking about are depressing but also highlight that there's always a choice that can be made we just have to decide like are we willing to do that um are we willing to let go of the fiction that we know capitalism etc has sold us it's a search for something new that might not be achieved or guaranteed um, which I feel like I know we we're gonna talk about Squid Game. Um, okay, I haven't finished, so is that no spoilers, please? <laughs> I watched a video on Chloe Bailey the other day, and I got a Squid Game spoiler. I was so upset. 
So please. Okay. Oh, yeah. Oh, I, you know, I, spoilers, I live for them. So I'm, I'm, <laughs> I will be careful not to say that. But I was not initially going to watch it, but then my loctician was like, girl, you need to watch this Squid Game, you know, yada, yada, yada. So we're watching it. She got me hooked on it, even though I do not like to look at violence. Um, she got me Tell hooked me into it. the storyline. I don't know how far you are, but I definitely, I thought it was similar to Parasite in the sense that it was like an anti-capitalist critique, but all of it centered around choice to me, right? Like mm-hmm. you have the choice to participate or not. Mm-hmm. And yes, the consequences of not participating is death, but is death really all that scary considering what the other option is, is to live and live through that. Like, mm. I don't know. That's the shit I've been thinking about these days, guys. <laughs> <laughs> what what I found interesting about it is, so there's a point where they get, where they start talking about how all of the players are supposed to be equal. They're all supposed to start on a level playing mm-hmm. field. And if you, if you affect that, then you're affecting the game and the rules of the game. And obviously there's there's a fiction to that. Even though they think that that's, that's true, there's a fiction to it just like there is in, in our society. We don't all start on a level playing field, even though everybody seems to think that if all of us do the exact same things, we're all going to be rich just like everybody else. But it's like, no, this is not a meritocracy. There is no meritocracy in capitalism. And the people in trust also actively undermine that. So they're not... They say that, but they don't believe it. Hmm. I was going to say that it's interesting that the at least the last two major cultural imports from South Korea have been anti-capitalist, that being Parasite and Squid Game. And I also saw someone say that Gangnam Style was also anti-capitalist. Um, but I don't <laughs> know. I'll be Korean and the translations have been bad. But the, but the bad, thing is, like... So, I don't know how true that is, but it's interesting that that's The thing is that, through. like... All of these, the, the film, and if that's true about Gangnam Style and all of that stuff, the, the movies, they're done and undone by their popularity, right? Like they become popular, mm. but then they also become the thing that they claim to be critiquing. Yeah. Oh, God. I, they just, I think it's just like they just kind of stuck in the rat race kind of thing. Because it's like if you create anti-capitalist art to be sold on the market then <laughs> it like then defeats the purpose of the thing but I do think the girls are on to something like it's definitely time to shake the table or just evacuate <laughs> like <laughs> um like I'm thinking like what was Beyonce saying like call my girls and put them all on the spaceship uh, not- like that's the energy we need take me to planet her Doja answer my calls <laughs> like it's time to go <laughs> like to go. I just don't know if it can be redeemed at this point i mean what is what what would you like to redeem exactly you know that's what i'm saying there's nothing there's nothing here so it's like so you all think that we should try to go to mars no don't leave you want to go to mars no 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 because because i know i know when the martians are anti-black i'm gonna leave you guys i'm gonna leave you guys I won't really be done because intergalactic anti-blackness is what I want. I'm like, to. no, <laughs> not intergalactic colonization. I'm good. I'm like, we made a mess. <laughs> I won't do it. No. Also, leave the exactly. alone. Uh-uh. Well, with that, we'll call it the end of our episode.
that is our episode, everyone. It has been great. The four of us, four brilliant, beautiful black women in one Zoom room, on one podcast. Here we are. Thank you so much for being with us, Liberty and Jordan. This has been truly inspired. Can you let the listeners know where they can find you, catch up with your episodes, and all of that good stuff? Of course, of course. We are available wherever you listen to podcasts, um, though namely Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Apple Podcasts. Follow us um, or at Lose Your Sister. Um, that's just like how you would normally spell it on Twitter and Instagram. And feel free to send us your thoughts by DMs or email us at loseyoursister at gmail.com. Thank you all for listening. This episode was produced by Alyssa James and Brendan Tynes and distributed in partnership with the American Anthropological Association. This season of the podcast is generously funded by a grant from the Arts and Science Graduate Council and donations from listeners just like you. Thank you all for that support. If you liked this episode, please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. We would love to hear what you have to say about this episode, so be sure to follow us on Instagram at Zora's Daughters and on Twitter at Zora's underscore daughters. For transcripts, syllabi, and information on how to cite us or donate, visit our website, Zora'sDaughters.com. And remember, we must take care of ourselves and each other. Bye. Bye. It's been a pleasure. Bye.